fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And we're taping this episode, our fourth season premiere, in the wake of the news that President Trump has COVID. It's a strange new world and changing pretty much every minute, it feels like. What's his temperature? I mean, what's the world's temperature? Okay. <laughs> I'm still going to say four seasons into doing this, and I still think that no matter what happens, literature has already covered it. But I've got to say that, like, the president gets a disease that he pretended didn't exist. I, I'm looking for some literary uh, connections to that. Do you, you got any books for me? Um, I'm sure if I looked long enough, I could find something, but maybe this could be our first ever. I feel like Jose Saramago would have written something like this. (laughs) Right? Or or like maybe Tolstoy. I don't know. Or maybe it's somewhere in like Newt Gingrich's speculative history (laughs) works. (laughs) I'm not as familiar with those as I probably should be. Um, those of you who don't watch the virtual book channel can't see my face right now, but there's a facial expression to go with that comment. Um, so maybe this is our first ever reader challenge. Readers, if you know where this has been covered in literature, would you please let us know? I that would really would like, yeah. to, I'd really like we'll to hear about it. We'll have you on the show if you can find the best one. <laughs> well, um, anyway, I also uh, think that no matter what happens, literature has it covered. I think that that's a fulfillable reader challenge, so I'll look forward to hearing about it. Um, in our last episode, we talked about how the South's increasing diversity is affecting Southern literature and Southern politics. And on today's episode, we're going to continue that conversation about the South by talking specifically about New Orleans, displacement, and climate change in the wake of the 15-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And we're speaking with two terrific guests from New Orleans. Later in the show, we'll be joined by writer Tom Piazza. But first, we're excited to welcome Christina K. Robinson. Robinson is a writer, curator, and visual artist born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her ongoing installation and performance art project, Republica, Temple of Color and Sound, has been presented in exhibition at Welcome to the Afro Future during Miami Art Week, the New Museum's residency program, Ideas, City, and the New Orleans African American Museum. Both iterations of Republica, Temple of Color and Sound received enthusiastic reviews in Sugarcane Magazine and most recently Pinup Magazine. Robinson is the co-editor of Mixed Company, a collection of short fiction and visual narratives by women of color. Her writing in various genres has appeared in Guernica, The Baffler, The Nation, The Massachusetts Review, and Elle, among other outlets. She is a 2019 recipient of the Rabkin Prize for Visual Arts Journalism. Currently, she serves as the New Orleans editor-at-large for the Atlanta-based Burnaway Magazine. Welcome, Christina. Thank you all for having me. Christina, it's great to have you with us. You grew up in New Orleans, and Maurice Carlos Ruffin, who was on our last episode, is another New Orleans native who wrote a novel imagining a future in which racism has increased in the South. And in other interviews, you've mentioned that pre-Katrina New Orleans often inspires your writing along with, and I'm quoting here, remembering places that have gone and imagining a better future, which is such a hopeful phrase. And I'm wondering if you could start us off by talking a little bit about your inclinations toward hope in your own writing and visual art. So it's really interesting. Um, hope is such a, um, a heavy uh, concept, right, in some ways. I just... Uh, as a disposition sort of the human spirit and then as a cultural reality of growing up in this country, right? And so there are ways in which like hope as a concept has uh, definitely sort of been politicized like in the American, you know, like construct, political construct. And sort of as a young child or a young person being really, really 
um, invested in history and ancient history, you know, modern history. I'm looking at things and I'm like, wow, this seems, you know, it doesn't seem so hopeful. Like, and I think something about sort of that early devastation as a young person and thinking, well, what I see in the past directs me to be like frightened about the future in a certain way, right? And so I think it started like sort of an early impulse to create or to write. And I remember being on a panel as an adult, we were talking about sort of women's art practice, right? And I characterized myself as a pessimist. And there was a woman in the audience and she was like, you know, I see you as an optimist in the way that you sort of continuously try through an interdisciplinary practice to put an idea forth in the world in different forms. And she really uh, recontextualized myself for myself, right? And made me think about what hope is in such a different way. I think up until that point had really struggled sort of with um, the label of pessimist as applied to maybe black female critics or writers or artists who are sort of like questioning the status quo. And I thought that made me a pessimist because I questioned the status quo. And she sort of really recontextualized what optimism was and like sort of what it meant to hope. And once she said that to me, I think I was able to look at my work much more directly as that and understand that as what I was doing, both for myself and hopefully maybe for others, was that every time you make a new thing, that is a form of hope or optimism for the future. But yeah, it was like a really important stranger in my life. She like really, you know, opened something up for me about myself. Were you in New Orleans during Katrina? I mean, you know, Katrina happened 15 years ago. To me, it seems like just yesterday. But I have children who were not born at that time. And I have students who were like three or four years old when it happened. Were you there? And, if, and, and could you just sort of talk about like what it was like then 15 years ago? Um, so I left um, at the last minute, basically the day before, but I was obviously in constant contact with people who were at home. And so that, that moment, in a sense, of uh, Katrina making landfall, I guess the, the thing that stood out the most for me was it making landfall, making contact with people who are at home. And there were a couple or a few hours where everything seemed like it was okay. Like it was a bad storm. We got this damage. You got to deal with that. But then the levees broke. I mean, it's so weird that that's like one of the oldest song lines in American history. And then, but it is a real thing, you know, when the levees break. Yeah. And then the levees broke. And I remember I was in Houston and there was just this I don't know, it's a shock that is hard to sort of articulate in a sense. I, re I remember a woman um, who was my mother, a friend's mother. She really was, you know, she was screaming, she was crying. She got the, the full weight of it right in that moment. And there were a couple people to the left of me that's like the human mind tries to lessen something that's like, oh, well, maybe, you know, or, you know, and then you start to realize like, wait, people are gonna die. You know, and all of this happens in the span of just a few minutes, but it feels like an epic amount of time. And it really was just a few minutes from realizing, one, that it had happened, two, that it was true, that it meant where you lived was, un where, you know, was underwater and then that people were going to die. Was it, were you, 
watching it on TV or was it like a phone call and you were talking um, to people there? I mean, how did you, that specific moment when you realized like, oh my God, you know, this is really going to happen. Yeah, I was actually, I was in Houston and I was in uh, like a Motel 6 or something. And so I was just, I wasn't watching TV. I was really just sitting, talking to a whole bunch of people from New Orleans, some people that I knew and other people that I didn't know. We all just ended up in this one spot together. Um, and it was sort of like a collective experiencing of the news of it. And then came the next days of which is the like becomes the the horror, figuring out who you know probably has passed away or talking to people who are now in the Superdome, you know, the guilt you're feeling, these feelings of guilt that I still struggle with. You know, you feel this like kind of intense guilt, you know. And then you're hearing all of the extraordinary measures that people are having to take just to survive, you know, or just to live, things that you just never thought you may have to do, you know? So it's really like kind of, um, sort of like, a, uh, not even sort of like, like a war level conflict, like what was happening on the ground and then what's happening to your life in real time as you're trying to like negotiate your space. Cause then we were like placeless at that point. And then, you know, declared so in the national narrative. And then that was a whole other moment of realization. I mean, what I remember also was that it was, in fact, a time of war, and we were at war in Iraq. And, of and, course, uh, right. You know, I had opposed the war and was interested in, in writing about it. But also, that moment of Katrina was sort of the end of George Bush's presidency. I mean, he's famous for having done a terrible job there and the attaboy brownie comment and all that stuff mm-hmm. sort of set a political narrative that sort of ended his political career. Well, I mean, it ended his presidency, uh, and, and he was very low in the polls, but that's not what's the most important thing here. What I do want to talk about is like, that was what New Orleans was and that Katrina was in that moment for CNN, if you were watching, right? But how has the narrative of Katrina changed in the 15 years since we have had that disaster and went through it? Or do you think it has changed? Has it stayed the same? Has it been forgotten? I feel there's the the, the discussion of Katrina as a, a national event and an international event has sort of been collapsed in such a short period of time, right? I remember reading so many things that uh, would characterize something as like, this isn't just a Katrina story, or this is more than a Katrina story. And I just feel like, wow, this, it, hasn't, it hasn't been a full 20 years even, you know, for us to even sort of assess what the, the true implications of this event have been you know, demographically, socially, politically, and people are already, you know, like, don't talk about it anymore, we've talked about it enough, or somehow you need to uh, make your narrative reach beyond this epic event, you know, in American history. And so I've sort of seen a sort of collapsing of the discussion as if it's like no longer necessary to be discussed in a certain type of way, and then, I will say not a minimizing of it, just a just a, a distortion. Like I feel like it hasn't truly ever been properly contextualized yet, which to me somewhat makes sense because it is it's 15 years is a long time, but a short time, you know, in the course of history. So it's sort of important to me to to always try to keep people aware of that, like the full implications of it. We're really just entering some of it right now in this moment in American history to me. 
Can you say a little more about that? Um, I guess I see sort of a lot of the precedents that Katrina set for disaster and how America responds to disaster or crisis and what the American public expects from the government in terms of responding to crisis or disaster, especially when it affects a vulnerable population. So many precedents were set in Katrina. Um, that Which I is the precedent of doing a crappy job, basically. Right, <laughs> I mean, sure, right. We're having the precedent being... of everyone getting treated like the people of New Orleans during this current exactly. pandemic. Yeah. Which the president this morning, we all found out uh, on the day that we're recording, says it positive for COVID. Um, so, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think that there was uh, a definite um, precedent set for how to mismanage acceptably mismanage uh, a crisis, especially if the victims were going to be a vulnerable population of people. Um, And I think we've seen that sort of in the COVID pandemic, but now we're seeing the further ramifications. That's really interesting because, I mean, some of what you're saying sounds to me, right, like it's important to talk about Katrina on its own terms and not simply in comparison to other things or as an end to understanding other things. Sure. Um, and I write mostly about Sri Lanka and people will often sort of talk about Sri Lanka only as a case study for other things. And I, I think that it's, of course, not a perfect parallel, but it reminds me of that. And then at the same time, it's part of this longer history, which does connect, but perhaps not in the ways that people expect. And you're um, talking a little bit about the pandemic and then also you have family members in Reserve Louisiana where cancer rates are, are 50 times the national average. Uh, and there's a synthetic rubber plant built on the former site of Bell Point Plantation, which emits carcinogens into the community air supply. And this is another instance and in way in which kind of American racist history persists in ways that are quieter, but also deadly. Another way that climate change and, um, I don't know, the tainting of our natural environments is going to perhaps prompt other kinds of shifts or displacement. How do you see the conversations about corporations and climate change and health um, progressing in light of this summer's protests about racial justice and, and also in connection to what you were saying about the precedents that are being set? There's one way or there's some ways in which I see the connection um, between environment and race and climate change um, being something that's more forward in people's discussion. This situation um, in reserve, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but we're in some sort of a moment where there's more um, of a spotlight in some senses on environmental racism and there are more conversations being had about them. But I think because of that, now is sort of a time, you know, that you have to try to fight for some real specificity in how these conversations are happening about race and the environment and climate change since there's there's such a wide net of things, you know, that are happening environmentally and how they affect black people and uh, native people in specific parts of the country. And so there's this way in which I'm trying to develop a language that's really specific, that talks about what's happening um, in South Louisiana so that it's not collapsed. Um, you know, like, you know, things like the Anthropocene, you know, and like, well, how does the Anthropocene take into account race? You know, we're not all affecting this situation the same in the same way for the same reasons. Um, and so that's sort of like what I see happening a lot in Louisiana right now, that there are like real um, 
intellectuals on the ground, people, organizers who are developing that really specific language to talk about uh, climate change and environmental racism and how it, you know, it specifically affects these people in South Louisiana, whether it be these carcinogenic plants or, you know, disappearing wetlands. You know, it's all interconnected, but it all is very, you know, it all has to be approached very specifically in a sense. There's not a catch-all way to address these things. The fall that we were, that we started this podcast, I was at a residency where I was with the artist A.L. Steiner, who talked a lot about the Anthropocene and sort of the first time I had really thought about it hard. And that question, how does race fit into that conversation is such an important one. And speaking of developing specific language, I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about your work to me is your art is often multimodal um, and you were working with literature, cinema, sound, visual and performance art, and specifically in Republica, which we, we mentioned when we introduced you. Um, and I wonder if developing this specific language also means working in multiple modes, if that's part of it. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, I think I realized that there was this requirement for me to try to uh, push my ideas into multiple genres, right? Um, so it's like I grew up in a, in a disciplinary culture in the sense that in New Orleans, almost nobody is one thing, you know? So a teacher may also be a musician, may also uh, participate in these various like cultural institutions in New Orleans. So this way in which being and practicing multiple disciplines sort of is like a natural cultural setting in the sense of that's you know, how I grew up. But at a certain point as a writer, when I started having or building relationships with people in the diaspora and particularly people outside of the United States, um, and, you know, encountering the language barrier and making friends past the language barrier, you know, getting in an argument when you don't speak the same language, all of these things. And just really seeing that I wanted to be able to sort of, uh, you know, traverse geography in a way that writing can do, but visual also can do. And I, I, I deeply was like sort of interrogating language, being a person from South Louisiana who you know, we've lost several languages in the course of my lineage in being in the United States. You know, we've lost indigenous African languages. We've lost the indigenous native language, lost the Creole that's created, um, you know, through various ways, assimilation, laws, you know, so all of this way that language was so a part of the way I expressed myself, but there were so many things that I knew I could not say in English and people who could not read me in English. And I deeply wanted to talk to all of these people. And so sort of that's when like sort of the visual and the sound became like another vehicle um, for me to express the same ideas I was expressing in the essay. You know, censorship, surveillance, all of these things, you know, that uh, sort of like pushed me into trying to work with the page and then off the page. And so sort of the idea of Republica was really about thinking about the current political situation as non-inevitable, which is counter to the way you're taught American history. You know, we're taught that everything about where we find ourselves in today was inevitable. And it was sort of about pushing against that inevitability and looking at these moments in history where things um, had opportunity and space to look different um, and so for me, that was looking at these slave revolts 
that had happened in Louisiana over the course of a couple centuries and seeing how, in particularly a couple of them, truly really threatened sort of the course of this inevitability that we you know, just accept today. One of your recent essays, uh, The Dark Room in the Attic, Blackness and Visibility, deals with uh, what we've been discussing in terms of current events in the South. I wondered if you could read a little bit to us from that essay. So this is sort of toward the end um, of the essay, and it's uh, thinking about Ahmad Arbery, who's killed by uh, private citizens in Atlanta. Imagine on that fateful road where Ahmad Arbery jogged into Georgia, the cameraman had made a different decision. Instead of capturing that moment of death that Barth describes, imagine him becoming an actor in his own production, choosing to interrupt the conversation between photography and racism. Imagine him stepping from behind the lens, as Jacobs does in her autobiography, to write a narrative challenging the institution of chattel slavery and appearing for a moment in the same frame as Arbery. Visual language that relies on black suffering or juxtaposes its joy against its absence continues a dialectic that encourages humans to act in accordance with a deadly script. In our varying degrees of isolation and confinement, the formulation of strategies toward a better way to live become necessary. While uprisings and protests have been underway, monuments to slaveholders across the country have been ripped from their plinths, including the bust of John McDonough in New Orleans. The day I visited Dyson's Black Computational Thought, I considered McDonough's early 19th century manumission scheme in which enslaved people could buy their deportation to Liberia after 15 years of labor. The abstract shapes created by Dyson became new stories as I imagined the persons and personalities of those who animate these abstractions. As such, it is in that beam of light, that ethereal moment before the image is captured, where freedom and autonomy may lie for black subjectivity, where the existence of a new, fabulous visual language for black life arises and introduces the possibility for action, one that might mean Ahmad Arbery could be alive and jogging again today. Thank you. That's so great and gets at the what you were saying about unteaching ways of thinking about history as inevitable um, and also about optimism and hope. And in that essay, you talk about photography and the pandemic and racism. And while you mentioned the recent protests surrounding systemic racism and police brutality, you know, as we just heard, you also mentioned the camera as a kind of weapon. Um, and in the essay, you write, Ahmaud Arbery's right to anonymity was violated by the white men who demanded to apprehend him. It was pierced also by the camera lens that rendered him visible in our public consciousness and a decision made by the person recording a video of the scene to abet a literal death. And then on the other side of that, I think, you know, there's been a lot of writing about current social media trends and tendencies to record what is witnessed, which has also led to what seems like an increase in awareness of systemic racism experienced by black Americans and other people of color and indigenous persons. Well, not only that, but so much of the consciousness of Katrina was about film and photography and people taking pictures of what happened there, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you think about the consequences of photography and like with regard to Katrina and also this kind of violence? 
you know, there's this history of how people of color and then how specifically black people enter the canon of photography um, in the Western imagination, right, which is via the institution of slavery. Um, and even in a lot of writing, early writing and critical writing about photography, when they're trying to show you a photograph that uh, is supposed to be the photograph that exhibits like a real quality versus a flat uh, quality, it'll be a photo. It, it was a lot of photos of black people who had been, uh, you know, abused in uh, in the institution of slavery. So that thing that was going to like evoke this feeling or something being just so fundamentally tied to this type of suffering. The premise is that, okay, I'm, I'm exposing and showing this suffering so that um, in some senses it's supposed to evoke a moral response from the viewer. But if the people who are being shown have been rendered already in the cultural consciousness as non-human, non-deserving, criminal, um, there's a callousness in the, the display of their suffering that you know could not exist in the reverse, right? And so I saw, I experienced that via the lens of Katrina, via the lens of the earthquake in Haiti, the way in which, you know, the camera is so comfortable with black suffering. Like I can show you dozens of, you know, deceased black people, which we know we would never see an image like that of white Americans, that, that, that's an image we've never seen, you know, in reality in American media. And so also this kind of the, the premise and, and a, some, a few, even a few years ago was that the more videos we have, the more evidence we have that this murder was unjustified, the closer we are to justice. And we see, we've seen video after video after video after video with no justice. So there, there's something about what the lens presents, you know, suffering uh, as titillation, as evidence of your positionality as a victim, you know, the reifying of the image, um, you know, the collective uh, trauma of the image. And so I've thought a lot about the consequences of sort of, of that particular visibility um, for black Americans and then black people around the world. It has a, a, a relationship to these other older images of black suffering in America of like lynching, um, you know, mementos that were passed all around the country. And so that there's an appetite for this that isn't necessarily um, to evoke a moral response. And if we had a, we had a hypothesis that it could, I think it's sort of been undermined in the past few years. I think that there was a moment where people did think that, you know, body cameras were going to bring us closer to justice. And also, you know, thinking about it as an artist, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm white, uh, you know, but I write about race issues. And I think white artists have thought for a long time, hey, if I show this suffering, that will actually bring change, right? And you're suggesting, like, I think in a very very rational and believable way, like, well, maybe not, you know, maybe the action needs to come before just you collecting an image or writing something is not going to, is not apparently fixing the problem, you know? Yeah, because I've already suffered, you know? Yeah. The, the, the suffering is the thing that we're trying to preempt. 
as you're talking, I can't help but think of, um, and we talked about this a little bit last week with Maurice, but I've been watching Lovecraft Country, which I would watch every minute if I could. And I watched the most recent episode and don't want to spoil it for anyone, but felt like such intense joy watching black characters, for example, in spacesuits, um, like exploring new new territory, um, meeting other species, like in a context that I like the imagining of that was so powerful, like a presentation as a presentation of kind of like a radical joy of black people, not in that position that you're describing. Like it wasn't a reification of victimhood, but in fact of like of, of empowerment and I don't know, like reconciliation and beauty, uh, which is one of the things that I like about the show so much that it is subverting. I think some of the visual language I hadn't even realized that I had imbibed. And, and I'm often someone who doesn't like, you know, when a video of, um, like whatever her- horrendous violence has most recently happened to black bodies comes out. I don't watch. Um, of course, right. and I think there are people who feel like they, they watch those things so that they're bearing witness in some way. And I'm not sure what that does. Yeah. It's something that I've, I've thought so much about because of course we've been so inundated with these kinds of images. And I think we're sort of five years past the 10th anniversary of Katrina. And I thought about this thing that I had written around the 10th anniversary of Katrina. And I was like, that's what I was writing about then. I was thinking about these videos and this onslaught of imagery. And here we are five years later. And, you know, we're the cyclical nature of it. Yeah, I I just felt like if there was a hypothesis around that, it's sort of been taken apart in these last five years of being inundated with all of these videos that you thought you could never, you know, see or be presented with anything worse. I do remember people saying, like, these images that are being shown now are going to change the way America does everything. That was happening during Katrina when you were seeing people on top of their roofs, you know, or uh, in the in the Superdome. Uh, and that and it didn't. It didn't because they developed, you know, a national narrative that said it was your fault. And I think that that was the most profound thing about experiencing Katrina and it has so many reverberations into the present was this narrative that you know, the people who were there were uh, there due to their own negligence. Poor people, black people who had just hadn't done the right thing. And that's why all of this happened to uh, this, you know, all of that happened to the city. And then that designation of refugee, that like othering, and the placelessness of it. Um, and I think you see some of that, you know, even in the early parts of how the media was with discussing COVID, um, you know, it's interesting now, like it's the shifting a little bit, you know, but there was that narrative of, you know, the vulnerable communities who were suffering from COVID early, that it's somehow being about like lifestyle and all of these things, you know? Um, and I, I definitely saw that as a narrative that was developed in that time of Katrina. So you also, speaking of, we spoke and talked about your work in multiple genres. You also write poetry. Would you like read a poem for us? Sure. This one we've asked you to read is called Contemplating Extinction as a Theme in Basquiat's Pez Dispenser, 1984. From Malcolm Latif Shabazz. Yellow roses in my mother's room mean I'm sorry. Sadness comes in generations, inheritance, 
Split, flayed, displayed, better than all the others, crown, weight, the undue burden of the truly exceptional, most special of your kind, a kind of fire, persistent, unafraid, saffron bloom, to remind us of fragility or beauty or revolution, to ponder darkly in the bright, the fate of young kings, the crimes for which there are no apologies. Thank you so much. That's such a stunning poem. We've talked about the displacement of the people of New Orleans after Katrina and the racist crimes perpetrated by those who should have been in charge of helping those people and destruction in a variety of forms. And that poem makes me consider all of those things. And the poem's title mentions extinction as it relates to Basquiat's Paz Dispenser. And can you talk a little bit about the relationship between visual art and writing in this poem for you? It was funny. I was talking to somebody the other day and I was telling them that Basquiat's death, I was really little when that happened, but I remember it on TV. And although obviously I didn't experience them as an artist, I recognized their face and I knew that they were important as like a like a black figure somehow, but I was really little. And so I was always interested in them as an artist, um, kind of from that moment like on and then their names sort of evoke something about New Orleans for me and then okay I come to learn that his father was Haitian and these things like that but what was always really interesting to me about his work is that I I saw it as much as a text as I saw it as painting um and so I was really fascinated with thinking about how the words interacted with with how you know the visual was presented for you um and so for me it is, it's sort of about just the sort of the creative exercise of having an idea or a thought or a feeling, you know, an idea I have or a feeling I want you to have. And just for sort of the, the exercise of it, how do I put that into multiple forms? Like, how could I make you feel that emotion that you felt when you heard or read the poem? How could I make you see that feeling? Um, and so for me, it was, it was about, yeah, just trying to carry the idea forward, right? And so as it kind of related to extinction, it was sort of thinking about, like, the history of genocide kind of globally and sort of being sort of taken even very young with trying to figure out, like, the parameters of that and how that applied to my particular dynamic and feeling so vulnerable to that, maybe at a time that felt much more open and multicultural and all of these things were changing. But it's like, I'm reading history and it seems like the, the, the writing's on the wall. What, what, what do I do with that knowledge, right? And for me, it was about, that was sort of a motivation for being like, well, this just can't live on the page. If that's the case, and it's not to like just the page, but it's like this idea has to move. It has to be on the street, it has to be on a wall, you know, it has to be in an object in your hand. But just feeling like the, the social and political stakes were so high for sort of the people that I come from, that I felt like I sort of had like a responsibility to push my work in as many different forms as I could. Christina. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, we will suggest you go visit Christina's website at christinakrobinson.com to keep up on her latest work. Thank you so much, Christina. And you can also, of course, um, we will link to the site in our show notes and you'll be able to see images from Republica. Next up, we're joined by my old friend, Tom Piazza, and former poker-playing buddy. In addition to being my former poker-playing buddy, Tommy is the author of 12 books, including A Free State and City of Refuge, and the Post-Katrina Manifesto, Why New Orleans Matters, and the essay collection, Devil Sent the Rain. He was principal writer for the HBO series, Treme. Tom won a Grammy Award for his album, Notes to Martin Scorsese Presents the Blues, a musical journey. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Book Forum, The Oxford American, and Bob Dylan, no less, says, Tom Piazza's writing pulsates with nervous electrical tension, reveals the emotions that we can't define. Welcome to the show, Tom. Good to be here, Wit. Good to see you. I can't believe I didn't know this about the poker. So, Tom, I hope somewhere in this conversation I can hear all about you taking all of Whitney's money. <laughs> well, that's we're going to have to have. It went. It there's going to be a problem with him telling stories like that. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh Here see. it goes. You know, 25 <laughs> years ago, and we're still relitigating this. But that's all right. <laughs> Well, on this week's episode, we're talking actually about the 15-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, and it has already been an active hurricane season, which seems to fit the 2020 aesthetic of complete suckage. Um, We just witnessed Hurricane Laura barrel through Haiti, the DR, Louisiana, and Texas, and 10 hurricanes have hit Louisiana since Katrina. The New Yorker did an article in 2019 that says the Louisiana coastline loses a football field's worth of land every hour and a half. Do you even wonder if New Orleans is going to still be there in another 15 years? Well, of course, but I also wonder if, you know, San Francisco is going to be there in another 15 years. Um, or lower Manhattan or Miami, you know, or the Outer Banks. I think none of those places are going to be there, Not maybe not in 15, but maybe 30 years. I don't know. I guess one of the things that's been worthy of note uh, in the years since Katrina uh is that people really do land on so heavily as a New Orleans event. You know. It was bigger than a New Orleans event, though, and these kinds of harbingers of climate change, et cetera, et cetera, are, you know, they're ubiquitous at this point. You know. So I always try to push back just a little bit about making it too much a New Orleans thing, although, of course, obviously... Uh, the mythic weight of New Orleans, uh, the optics during the disaster, if you want to call them optics, um, and the sociology of it, uh, the novelty of the hugeness of the devastation in an American city obviously made it, makes it stand out. And at this point, you know, very much like with a lot of the other sort of social disasters we're watching, we're, we're starting to get used to seeing it. I still teach uh, a piece by John McPhee from his book, Control of Nature, about the Atchafalaya River, where he sort of explains, like, really, if there wasn't this river control structure at this one particular river junction upstream from New Orleans, that the Mississippi River wouldn't even go by New Orleans. You know, like, there are some, um, you know, unique geographical factors about New Orleans that make it hard. 
That's right. I, you know, it's hard not to worry. <laughs> it's hard not to worry about what's going to happen to the city. I mean, it's famously uh, below sea level. All that being said, um, it, it's probably better protected now than a lot of other places in southern Louisiana uh, or southwestern Louisiana. Uh, what you said, Sugi, about the uh, disappearance of the wetlands, the coastal wetlands, is is true. And extremely worrisome. And it's one of those kinds of things that you need a concerted uh, governmental and societal response to that we're not getting because we don't want to face it. And it's expensive and it's tedious. Um, you know, it requires a lot of hard work without a lot of high profile publicity rewards for the people involved in doing it. Um, so, yeah, I worry about it. I worry about it, but I also worry about the whole country at this point. I mean, I think the entire country is suffering from the effects of not just climate change denial, but social reality denial. So in New Orleans, I'm told that the high water marks from Katrina remain on buildings even now. And I'm wondering about other ways that the culture of the city has changed and adapted to Katrina's memory. And if, if someone wanted to visit... You know, I've never been to New Orleans. Uh, where would you tell me to go if I you wanted me to understand the way that Katrina changed the city? Are there bases that have disappeared, ones you wish you could show an outsider but can't? Well, we used to do a thing for several years after uh, after the disaster. Uh, my partner Mary and I would often sort of trade off on doing what we called the disaster tour because a lot of people started coming, certainly a couple of years after uh, the storm and then I, sh I say the storm, but it's really the failure of the federally constructed levees um, that really made the difference in New Orleans. I mean, coastal Mississippi got absolutely decimated by Katrina. And that was a natural disaster. Uh, what happened in New Orleans was a failure of planning and then a failure of the execution of the plans in terms of the levee system. And we would go to Gentilly, these neighborhoods, it's a city of neighborhoods. We'd go to Gentilly, we'd go to Broadmoor, we'd go to Lakeview, and probably most famously, I guess, uh, the Lower Ninth Ward. Those places are still there to see. You know, some of the buildings still have marks on them. Uh, the city has come back extraordinarily well, I would say. Really, 15 years ago, if you had said that the city would be where it is today, uh, it would have been a little hard to believe. Uh, so anyway, I guess probably if you were to come to the city today, I would say, let's go take a ride down to the Lower Ninth Ward because it's there where the probably the remaining, the damage that remains, the damage that hasn't been reconstructed, what have you, is probably the most widespread. So, but there's not, you know, really you have to go looking for it now a lot more than you used to have to. Um, Obviously, a lot of the places in town that, that have more affluent citizens were able to rebuild uh, a lot faster than some of the less affluent areas. That's, that's just obviously the way it goes. Lakeview, which is a mostly uh, white uh, part of the, of the city, uh, close to Lake Pontchartrain, got you, you wouldn't have believed what it looked like uh, after the disaster. It was hideous. It was, in a lot of ways, every bit as bad as the, as the Ninth Ward looked. 
but the people there had insurance by and large. Um, they had resources. Uh, the Lower Ninth Ward is an extraordinary place, an extraordinary place, uh, and but and working class, working people lived there. A lot of people built their own homes. Uh, been there for a long time, but it wasn't a place with a heck of a lot of surplus capital, if you will. It's interesting to hear about um, people sort of going as post-Katrina tourists, which of course, I mean, shouldn't surprise me. I'm, I write mostly about Sri Lanka and I'm reminded of kind of the post-tsunami, post-Indian Ocean tsunami oh, wow. and, and post-war tourism, which sounds like in some ways um, adjacent to the, what you're describing. Um, you're talking about New Orleans as a, as a city of neighborhoods and, and you wrote for David Simon's HBO series, Treme, which was just named for one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city in a historically black neighborhood. And it's adjacent to the French quarter, if I remember correctly, I'm wondering how the real Treme looks these days. And I mean, lots of black and indigenous people and people of color were displaced to Dallas and Atlanta after Katrina. And how many of those folks were able to return and, and how have those neighborhoods changed? Well, as a general remark, uh, New Orleans is certainly a younger city now and a whiter city uh, than it was before Katrina. Oh, really? I did not know that. Oh, that's interesting. So it's like gentrif- that it was like a gentrification process happened after the hurricane. Is that what it was like? Or <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, so much of the city was was just decimated by by the disaster. And in the rebuilding process, it's a place where there's a lot of, um, how would you say, there was a lot of relatively inexpensive property. It's always been a place, at least ever since I've been coming here, uh, it's always been a place where creative people, imaginative people uh, could come and live and be who they more affordably than they could in a lot of other urban areas that you might have wanted to live in than New York, San Francisco, Chicago. I mean, tick them off. Um, so that has begun to change because about the last figure I heard was that about 10% of the city's population right now came here, has arrived, has moved here uh, after Katrina. That's a big percentage, 10% of the city. Um, obviously not all of that 10% is white, young, affluent people, but a big proportion you know, is. You know, there's a character in Treme, uh, Albert Lambrou, who's trying to rebuild his house after Katrina, which proves difficult, as you're discussing here, you know, because there was uh, so much damage, you know, done to the black community in, in that neighborhood and, and other neighborhoods like St. Bernard, Paris, and, and the Ninth Ward, which you've already mentioned, um, after the levees broke. And you also, the characters in your excellent 2008 novel about Katrina, City of Refuge, also live in the Ninth Ward. We, I mean, we're talked a lot about the Ninth Ward. I want to talk about why that place is important to you as a as a writer, and why it's important to the city, and also maybe just for people who haven't been to New Orleans. Right, the Lower Ninth Ward was not necessarily, uh, you know, one of the iconic, if you want to use that term, uh, neighborhoods of the city the way say, the Garden District is, or Treme even, or the French Quarter, whatever, a, a part of the city that had a very distinctive um, style of architecture. The, the, what you would have seen before the disaster going through the Lower Ninth Ward was just a very standard working class part of New Orleans. You saw the houses were basically wooden frame houses, what they call shotgun houses here, right? which is to say 
houses that present a narrower uh, aspect to the street and then go back. They named it that because you could stand at the front door and shoot a shotgun and it would go all the way to the back of the house. So, so it was those kinds of houses, um, modest for the most part, uh, fairly close together, and um, you know, a place where working people lived and they had a culture down there. Their people knew each other. A lot of times people had been there for generations. Um, so it, it's not as if I could tick off a bunch of landmarks. They were neighborhood saloons, neighborhood uh, shops. Uh, my partner, Mary, is a civil rights lawyer down here, so I've seen a lot of... <laughs> I've seen a lot of parts of the city and I've seen a lot of dimensions of the reality of the city that I never would have seen, uh, you know, sort of just under my own steam, probably. I know a lot of musicians, so I get around, but uh, this is a different thing. The Ninth Ward, I set City of Refuge partly in the Ninth Ward. As you know, this, the, that novel is divided between a somewhat affluent family of white transplants from the Midwest, the husband in the family, Craig, uh, was a big New Orleans fan and sort of really wanted to live here and came down here with his family. And so they had a certain set of resources, a certain set of reasons for being here, reasons for staying, but options also in the wake of the storm. Um, and the family that I chose to place in the Lower Ninth Ward, a very representative kind of family, the head of the family is a carpenter and uh, built built the house <laughs> they lived in. So I, partly I chose the Ninth Ward as a, as a contrast and it, as a place that got hit very, very, very hard, catastrophically uh, during Katrina. What happened there was that there was a canal uh, that forms the border between what they call the Lower Ninth Ward and the Upper Ninth Ward. And they called the Industrial Canal, which you mentioned uh, in the very first paragraph of the book. I was just looking back, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that apparently a barge got loose or something and knocked into the levee that protected the lower nine, uh, you know, from the water in the Industrial Canal. And when that broke, it was like a bomb going off. Um, really, a tsunami of water flooded into the lower ninth ward and raised the buildings there. But the but the other thing is that despite the poverty, despite the violence, uh, despite all the sort of standard urban ills uh, by which we're uh, uh, with which we're by now very familiar, um, it was also a place with amazing vibrancy. It was a great neighborhood. People knew each other. People had block parties. People took care of each other. People looked out for each other. People supported each other when there was trouble, you know. So I think a lot of people who were looking on from outside wondered why anybody would ever want to rebuild there. Why would anybody want to go back? Uh, and the answer is because it's, <laughs> because it's your home. And there was a community there that sustained people, not just economically or, you know, but, but spiritually. New Orleans is a deeply spiritual place. So as you're talking about this, I can't help but think of our most recent, um, not purely urban ill, but uh, the pandemic has affected cities in a very particular way. And the kind of social fabric that you're talking about depends so much on interaction and proximity and, I don't know, Jane Jacobs sidewalk um, community. And, you know, I'm 
New Orleans has been a city that that uh, thrives on tourism, um, whether it's hotels or Michelin starred restaurants or the crowds on Bourbon Street. And that also has been affected by the pandemic. And, and of course, the pandemic is also affecting communities of color differently. So how is that soul that you're describing in the face of COVID-19? How has your community been affected? Well, people are trying to make the best of it uh, under extremely trying circumstances. And you make a great point. The city's characteristic ways of celebrating or enforcing community, uh, you know, have really been ruptured. And because it's very social, the street parades, for example. Yeah, what's going to happen with Mardi Gras in, fe- in February? I don't, see how, I don't see how they can possibly have Mardi Gras this coming February in any kind of responsible way. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But if Mardi Gras is one thing, this is the time of the year, every year, when the what they call the social aid and pleasure clubs uh, down here, which are almost universally African-American social clubs. And, and initially, many of them were formed initially as, as burial societies, uh, that they would get together and pool their money and be able to pay for funerals uh, for one of their members. The funerals are expensive. And and that's where a lot of the tradition of so-called jazz funerals comes from. Well, you haven't been seeing a whole lot of jazz funerals these last six months. And this is also the time of the year when the social aid and pleasure clubs would have their annual, per- they have an anniversary parade on Sunday. Everyone has a different Sunday. You know, like this week it would be the... You know, the money wasters, and next week it might be the Jolly Bunch or whatever it might be. The Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club is probably the most famous of all of these black men of labor. Um, so that would always be a huge event, huge event, where people would come and, and, follow, and they would always have a brass band or two brass bands and that proceed through a, a certain route and stop at different watering holes. It, was, it, was, it, it keeps the spirit alive. We can't do that, obviously. I mean, brass bands are wind instruments, you know, just in yeah. a first basic term, you know, it's really sad. I, my friends who are in the music business, you know, that's uh, particularly if they, you know, I mean, playing electric guitar is not the same deal, but you know, it's just so hard for anyone in the, in the music biz, in the music world. It's funny. I, I just was thinking, I mean, I'm a musician and, um, I'm in a Sunrod, a, a group that started as a Sunrod tribute band. And we had a, a gig a week ago and the brass instruments went and the wind, woodwind players were like, we have, we produce a lot of spit when we play. We cannot participate in this gig. I mean, you have a spit valve, you know, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Don't aim that spit valve at me. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, yeah. So it was, I mean, um, obviously that sort of culture is ruptured. Yeah. Uh, I don't think terminally, uh, you know, a number of the brass bands or individual musicians have been doing what the musicians around the country and around the world have been doing, having, you know, sort of live streaming uh, events, but also restaurant culture down here. I mean, a big, big centerpiece of social life in New Orleans is you get together someplace and you eat and you talk. That's huge. And, uh, you know, luckily down here, we've... You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to put it in lucky terms, but we we are fortunate to have I'm sorry a Democratic governor with common sense, uh, John Bill Edwards, and a Democratic mayor of the city, Latoya Cantrell, and Latoya Latoya has been very uh, sensible, I think, and pretty tough 
and strict on saying, no, we're not going to have people eating restaurants. We're going to have people eating maybe outside. All of that stuff, masking. So in a funny kind of way, New Orleans, putting aside for a second the question of the rupture in people's ability to actually have you know, traditional social interactions, um, in terms of cases of COVID, uh, my understanding is that this city, actually New Orleans proper, is almost like a bubble uh, in terms of a, lo- a much lower incidence of new cases and deaths, uh, even than the adjacent uh, Jefferson Parish, which is kind of among its many pleasant aspects, is also a white flight uh, you know, enclave. So Jeff Parish has been, has been seeing an alarming spike uh, in deaths uh, and new cases. And, and the same thing goes for like the Lafayette area, southwest Louisiana. Uh, I, I would say just the, the population in New Orleans is maybe a little bit more tuned in. And um, it's, it's been kind of interesting to look around and see that I think in, in some ways, the fact that the city has a, a huge population uh, still you know, of people of color has made a difference. A little informal, just trying to look around as I drive around or do whatever I do. Um, You know, it seems to me that people of color in the city have taken the mask thing percentage-wise a little bit more seriously than white people. I'm trying to think, why is that? I have a whole theory on this. Well, and I, th- I just think people of color are maybe a little bit more used to the idea that they're not invulnerable and immortal. Yeah, that's totally it. I think it's like a white supremacy thing. Like my friends, the people that I grew up with who grew up in white-only environments and were members of white-only country clubs and went to, you know, prep schools, they've never had anyone tell them what they're supposed to do that would in any way impinge right. on everything that they want. And they just can't handle Ent- it. Their entitlement. Yeah. Fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm jealous of you, both of you, with your Democratic uh, governors, because our governor is not, and he's got COVID. I saw that. Yeah, right. What's but, happening uh, with that, by the way? What, it, I don't know. I, I know that everyone in rural Missouri is, is getting COVID because they're spiking like crazy. And But the city here, which is uh, has a mayor who's African-American, who's a friend of mine, is doing fine. We're much better off, really. You know, uh, It's just sort of the same deal. So anyway, before we run out of time, I want you to read this essay from Devil Sent the Rain called In Continental Drift, which also was first published in, in the Huff, Huffington Post, so people can find it there if they want online. But it connects some of these ideas, I think, that we're talking about. and connects Katrina to this other sort of sequential failures of the federal government and, and our leaders, which is also something that Christina K. Robinson, our first guest, has talked about a lot. So I think it'll really be interesting to listen to. So. I wrote this piece in in, uh, 2010 when the BP oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico. I describe it a little bit in here. And uh, it was also the fifth anniversary right around then of Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, all the media descended on New Orleans as they did on the 10th anniversary, slightly less now on the 15th anniversary. I'm sure 20 will be a big one. And... um, Well, I'll just read the piece. It's called Incontinental Drift. Already the captains and kings have departed along with their attendant media grandees. It was nice of them to stop by New Orleans for the anniversary and give everybody around the country and the world a look from what must seem a comfortable distance. 
Just five years ago, water was cascading into the Lower Ninth Ward, into Lakeview, into Gentilly, and Mid-City, and Broadmoor, and St. Bernard. It would take a day or two, but the entire world was about to see what was possible in America circa 2005. At first, it looked as if New Orleans had been smacked by a hurricane, which, of course, it had. It would take a while longer for people to understand that the images that halted the coffee cup en route to the mouth or that kept their eyes open and fixed on the news past bedtime were the result not of a natural disaster, bad as the hurricane was, but of a catastrophic planning and engineering failure on the part of the Army Corps of Engineers. Many still don't realize it. Of course, many also think that Iraq planned the 9-11 attacks. And then this summer, BP. It became a mantra. You poor guys down there. First Katrina flooded your city, and now this. All this spillage. It was getting kind of embarrassing. To be an American, I mean. We had had some dicey moments before Katrina, to be sure. The savings and loan scandal, then Enron, then WorldCom. Nobody's going to remember these, by the way, anymore at this point. Uh, it's been so eventful. They proved relatively easy to contain, and importantly, they offered no searing visual images to disturb the sleep of the Republic. By the time Katrina hit, we had been hemorrhaging money, human blood, and credibility in Iraq for two years. But we had a story to cover that. We had been attacked. The mainstream media mostly went along with that particular narrative, even though it had nothing to do with the war in question. Katrina, however, was different. Katrina exposed something rotten at the root. The federally built levees were weak as a wino's teeth, and the governmental response to their failure was worse than inept. The federal government suddenly, glaringly, resembled a drunk who had all too publicly lost control of his, shall we say, faculties. Three years later, in 2008, at least partly as a result of the previous losses of financial control. Wall Street and the housing market sheepishly said, we've had a little accident. And a massive dose of anti-diarrheals in the form of endless debt for future generations was required to keep the body politic from draining out completely. Two years later, another manifestation of the great incontinence, an oil well that ruptured and could not stop millions Billions? Who's counting? Of gallons of oil billowing out into some of the most ecologically sensitive waters on the planet. The government stood by wringing its hands as BP lunged at a series of ill-considered and untested solutions, one after another, falling repeatedly on their faces like country boys trying to catch a greased pig. As their veins become less forthcoming, junkies, Old-timers who have been shooting for years are known to look for a place to hit anywhere, between their toes, in their groins. Well, we Americans were famously addicted to oil, and with the deep water horizon blow up, the needle had broken off and the earth itself seemed to be bleeding uncontrollably. It was an image from the darkest wells of the collective psyche, a nightmare. They tell us that dreams exist to bring to light material that we're having trouble facing directly when conscious. What are these bad dreams telling us? The result of uncontrolled indulgence is, ultimately, a lack of control when you need it most. Americans don't want to hear it.
but we're not kids anymore, no matter how hard we try to act like it. There is an incontinence at our center now that is the result of years, decades, of telling ourselves that our destiny was manifest, our entitlement endless. We could spend uncountable amounts of money on a foreign war and offer tax cuts to the wealthy at the same time. We could consume energy without giving it a second thought. After all, we'd be dead by the time the account ran dry. We could toss the regulatory chains from the shoulders of the oppressed banking and investment industries, sorry, industry. The regulations were, after all, so 1933. We could cut corners on crucial infrastructure projects since the odds were that the levees and bridges and pipelines and dams wouldn't fail anytime soon. As a result, we're finding new orifices from which to bleed and drain at an ever-accelerating rate. How's New Orleans doing? We're doing all right. We have a new mayor, we're strong, but how are you doing? The levy failures, the BP spill, the financial meltdown, all share the same route. Somewhere, the nation lost the common sense understanding that corporations and government agencies can't be expected to regulate themselves. Or perhaps we've only lost the will to act on the understanding. The levies have been repaired, yes, in the places where they broke. The oil well has finally been capped, and all the oil has either evaporated or been eaten by microbes. You believe that? The two big-to-fail financial institutions have had their bad gambling debts paid by Big Daddy. Sleep well. It may be comforting to imagine that Katrina and this year's BP disaster happened down there, but from down here they appear to be happening right in the middle of everything. On the day of the anniversary, the president, for whom I voted so proudly not even two years ago, Barack Obama, spoke in New Orleans, promising, as did his predecessor, a full recovery. But on the larger stage, he is, dare I say it, pissing away his chance to articulate that oh-so-crucial sense of urgency, summon the necessary will to address a flawed underlying logic, rather than merely cleaning up the mess afterward. I know he doesn't want to be called a socialist, but if we can't figure out a way to grow up and fast, there will be no diaper in the world big enough for us. Thank you so much. Um, that's a hell of a set of metaphors. Um, <laughs> so your essay mentioned, uh, mentions the United States Army Corps of Engineers' poor excuse for multiple levees that were supposed to hold back a flood. And the French Quarter and the Garden District were spared the spots that, as you mentioned, bring in the most money or have a high concentration of wealth to this day. But by late August, at least half the city was flooded, if not more, and everything was underwater. Do you think that the Bush administration's failures during Katrina, and you mentioned Obama as well there, obviously, and the ensuing uh, series of failures you list, including Deepwater Horizon, do you think that all of that muckery sets us up to accept or expect the failure of the Trump administration to deal with first the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and then the COVID-19 pandemic? Are you saying, did they sort of foretell that? Like, did they lower the bar? Yeah, like, are they, it's like, it's like indoctrination. Like you get less and less outraged the more frequently the government screws this stuff up. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of the way it works, isn't it? I mean, I don't know that it's that way by design necessarily, but that's just the way it is. You can get used to just about anything if it happens by degrees. Um, I think this particular administration uh, has set a, 
a very high standard uh, that people have to meet in the future of total incompetence, lying, outright thievery and corruption. Uh, it's going to be very hard for anybody else to live up to this. What's interesting to me when we're talking about this disparate way that people are able to w build back from the disaster of Katrina, which you're talking about, that that like, you know, that the, that there's more there's more white people moved into there because, you know, and, and the neighborhoods that were more affluent were able to build back and the less affluent neighborhoods weren't. The, the disparity in outcomes is a lot like what's happening with COVID, going to happen with COVID, I think. Like, Amazon is doing great. Peloton is doing fine. Big companies, right? But but mo people who own, like, everyday, you know, pizzerias, you know, or restaurants, smaller businesses are going are getting crushed by this, right? And it's not just going to be less. It's going to be middle class people, too. It's like anyone who's not on the upper high levels, you know, are going to, are getting pounded by this COVID thing. I just think it's, a, it's, it's interesting. That connection... And that progression seems very familiar to me from Katrina to, to what's going to happen economically now. I, I, think it's, uh, I think that's a lesson we learn and a, a progress that we see or a, a picture that we see over and over again you know, throughout history, pretty much. What's amazing to me is that efforts are still made to try to palliate that and mitigate it, uh, unsuccessful or uh, partial as they might be. Um, and of course, we're in a situation right now where the people who are really controlling the game and have been controlling the game for the last three and a half years uh, are really actively hostile to those ex, you know, to those efforts of alleviating some of that misery. I mean, it's there's been some help, obviously, this year, uh, but not enough. Not not by a large, large margin. Not enough. And. Um, we're going to see what's happening. We're very worried down here, of course, about the musicians. We're worried about the gig workers. We're worried about the people who work at the restaurants. We're worried about the people who service the tourism industry. You know, what you say is exactly right, Whit. I mean, the people who do not have a big cushion, a big safety margin, are getting slammed horribly through this. And there's been no real concerted, organized, coherent movement toward being able to uh, make things better for those people. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. And, and listeners, we urge you to pick up City of Refuge, Why New Orleans Matters, or any of Tom's books. And of course, to watch Treme on HBO if you can. Tom wrote a 2018 article in the Oxford American on John Prine, who passed in April from COVID-19, which we'll also put in our show notes. Tom, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk soon, I hope. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. My name is Emily Stanley. I'm an MFA student at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and an intern at Fiction Nonfiction, along with my fellow UMKC MFA student, Mary Henn. We chose a topic for this episode and want to thank Christina and Tom for agreeing to speak with us about New Orleans. You can subscribe to the show by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
Please like and subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, or write a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how we find new listeners. Happy reading and Lazela Bontemps Roulette.